listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Morning, everybody. Hope you're doing good. Uh, my name is Will. I'm one of the on-staff pastors here. And yesterday afternoon, I got a phone call, and I thought it was a little girl crying, which isn't unusual. I work with students. Um, and then, like, through the sputtering, I realized that Brad was so heartbroken over the loss yesterday. <laughs> he was like, I just can't, can't get up in front of him. I can't. And so I, was, I told him I'd help out. So I'm, I'm glad to do it, Brad. It's not, not a problem. We've all got our own stuff to work through. <clears throat> um, seriously, though, I, I, I'm glad to be here. We're going to be in Mark chapter 5. Verse 21, if you're using one of the pew Bibles, if you didn't bring a Bible, we would love for you to, to take the one that's in the chair in front of you, make that your own. Um, we actually have some really nice ones in there now, so there, I don't know that there is an unrespectable Bible, but this is a more respectable Bible, and so you can keep it, and I believe that's on page 840. So we'll, we'll be getting started there. And, and as we do, and, and before I pray, I just kind of want us to remember where it is that we're starting here in Mark chapter 5 verse 21. Just a couple of things that have happened. So Jesus has been moving back and forth across the Sea of Galilee and that's how his ministry has been unfolding. And on one of those cases, as he was coming across the sea, that's where we have the story and the waves and the wind starts kicking up and the disciples are doing everything that they can, but it's outside of their own power to deal with this storm. They're freaking out. They go and grab Jesus. Jesus comes up and he tells the, the waves and the wind to be still, and they do, because Christ was able to do what no man could. And then as they land, Jesus gets off the boat, and right as he's, he does, he's met by this guy who calls himself Legion because he's so riddled and filled with demons that that is his identity now. And he, though everyone in the city or the village or whatever it was, has done everything that they could to try to make this circumstance work. It was outside of their ability and their power to do, but Jesus, within a moment, takes care of it. And, and, and so that's how we're entering in. And as I was reading over this text and praying about it and thinking about it, to me the hardest part was not what do you teach? Because I, I think it's very, you know, I, I mean, it's just very right in front of us in this set of scripture. To me, the, the more difficult thing was, well, how do you go about teaching this? And so here, here's kind of what I want to do. There, there are three primary truths. I, I don't necessarily want to call them points. I want to call them truths because regardless of where you go in the book, all three of these things are still going to remain true and are still going to inform your life. Um, but I wanted to, so if you're like the note taker type, I wanted to give them to you ahead of time because it, this, this narrative doesn't build like you read, you read, oh, point one, you read, oh, point two. It's just they're all thrown in there and sprinkled in there uh, throughout the whole thing. So here you go. Here, here are the three big things that I want you guys um, to realize as we work through the second half of Mark chapter 5. And the first is this, and I've already alluded to it in, in the two stories that let us in. And the first is Jesus has power over all things. I, I do not need to elaborate on that. You come up with a circumstance, Christ has power over it. He has power over all things. Secondarily, his power may benefit us, but it is not about us. 
And, and maybe I should change that and I should put it is not solely about us, but I think you understand what I'm driving at here. While his power and what he does may benefit us, you know, you think about the disciples in the boat, did it benefit them? Yes. Was it about them and their safety? No, it was about their recognition that he is the son of God. And, and then you have this, this man that's riddled with demons. Was it about him having a better week and not having this horrible life in chains and beat up and bound and ostracized from society? No. Did it help him? Yes. But the greater thing was showing that Christ has power over all things evil included. And so his power may benefit us, but it is not about us, not solely about us. And then finally this, Jesus has an eternal perspective, and so should we. In everything he does, his eyes are never at his shoelaces, and his eyes are never at the today or tomorrow. His eyes are heavenward, and that's what he calls us as believers to be as well. And so that's where we are, that's where we're going, and let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for this privilege, um, and at the same time, thank you even more that in my insufficiency and in all of our insufficiency, it is, it is you that comes to the forefront. And, and so, Father, as we open up your word and as we work through it, I pray that we would realize that this is not just dark ink on a light page, but it is much bigger than that. It's the word of God given to mankind. And not just for our own good today, but that we may rightly see ourselves and that we may rightly see you and that that would cause a response within us. And so, God, as we work through this, I just pray, Father, that for the heart that is far from you, that you would draw it near. And for those who would call themselves the children of God and indeed are, I pray that we would be encouraged to live this life that you have called us to live, but that we would also find conviction where we are not seeking you, where we are not holy, where we are not living a righteous life, and that we would again put our eyes on the cross and your all-sufficiency. So Father, I, I, I lean on you, we lean on you, and we just ask that as we work through the scripture today, that you would be glorified. And it's in Christ's name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Am I bumping? I'm bumping. Okay. I hate these things, man. You would not believe how much time goes into this little doohickey here. I know this is not redemptive for you. Okay. Is that better? Side. Side. Moving. Uh, yes. All right. Let's see, if it, let's see if that plays out. All right. So Mark chapter 5 verse 21. Everybody flip there. And while you do, it'll pop up behind you as well. I'm going to take these a couple chunks at a time. Verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. Now, I mentioned earlier that Jesus has kind of been going back and forth across the Sea of Galilee. And, and there's a reason for this. One, there were different areas of, uh, of people that he could minister to. But it goes in a little further if you remember what happened in Mark chapter 1. If you look in Mark chapter 1 verse 45, you can flip there if you want. It's going to pop up. We find this story about a leper. And, and Jesus heals this leper and he gives him an instruction. 
He says, do not run around telling everybody what I have done for you. He says, kind of hold it to yourself. But instead, here's what happens. Mark 1.45. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. The story is called the story of Jesus healing the leper. It should be called the story of the leper with the big mouth. That's what it should be because... Maybe even bigger than the healing of this leper is the fact that from this point forward, Jesus has to change his, his entire model of ministry. Hey man, I need you to keep it down. I healed you. I know your life's awesome now. You're welcome. You could do me one favor. Kind of keep this close to the chest. The guy's like, gosh, you wouldn't believe it. Goes out and now Jesus cannot openly enter a town. And the reason is this. And, and, and we realize this as we move through. What is it? That, that Jairus wants Jesus to do. He wants him to heal his daughter. What is the method by which he wants that done? He wants Jesus to touch her. Now, this was a belief, a cultural belief, before Jesus was on the scene. When, when Alexander the Great would walk through the streets, people would come out in droves, hoping that they would have an opportunity to be touched or to touch him. Why? Because the cultural thought was, when you come in contact with somebody, especially a person of power, some of that can be imbued to you. So they would hopefully touch Alexander the Great and get some of his power or his might or his military wisdom or his charisma or whatever else it was. And so the same thing is true here. Mark 3, we, we read about this, Mark 3, 9 and 10. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him. Why did he go with fishermen? Because when your life depends on standing in a boat and being able to teach from it, you don't want the accountant trying to figure out how to keep the thing stable. That's not biblically accurate. But I think Jesus was kind of thinking it through. You know, I mean, he's going to start teaching out of a boat. I was having a race yesterday with one of my cousins. We were up in Noonan um, for Christmas. And one of them had a power boat with a motor on it. And then the other boat was literally like a rowboat where the oars actually clicked in. I'd never had the opportunity to use one of these things. And Alan and I are just like booking it because we're the older ones. And then the kids are in there. You know, they just turn on the thing and they're just mm, cruising along. We owned them. But... The, the whole point was, we, you know, why? Because we were able to do this thing. You see, Jesus has started teaching with his back to the sea. And the reason is right here, verse 9 in Mark chapter 3. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Jesus is like, look, I'm coming I'm going to die for you, but the plan that my father has for me to die for you does not include you crushing me. It, it, it's going to happen, and it's going to happen right there, but I have some other things that need to be done first. And verse 10 goes on, and it says, For he had healed many, so that all who, has, who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. You see, this changes the scene entirely. If we see Jesus showing up to teach in a crowd like this, we can immediately think, well, they're just going to sit on the grass and be all civil, and they're just going to listen to Jesus. And then, when it's time for him to do his healings, they'll get in a single file line, and the disciples will be taking logs just to make sure they can get them plugged into ministry. That's not how it shook out. What happened was, Jesus would land, people would show up, and all of them wanted to touch him. So they're crowding around, they're densifying, and everybody is pushing in on top of one another, hoping just to touch him. 
Do you see how that informs the story? And so Jairus, which was a ruler of the synagogue, which he, he probably wasn't the preacher, he probably wasn't the teacher. He was the guy who made sure that the thermostat was set right. And he was the guy who made sure that the communion stuff was all, they didn't have that at the time, but you, you get what I'm saying. He made sure everything, who's going to pray, who's going to preach, that was more along the lines of what he did. I don't know if that caused the crowd in any way to separate for him to make it through to Christ. Or maybe it was his circumstance. Maybe it was that he had a 12-year-old daughter. In Luke, we read about it, and it says, an only daughter. So I know for a fact she didn't have any sisters. It may also mean she didn't have any brothers. She may have been an only child. And so here we have a father whose child is on the, the brink of death. The, the term here where it says, my little daughter is at the point of death, that, that would be like you or I saying they're knocking on death's door. And somehow he makes his way through the crowd to get to Jesus to ask him. And when I read about this, this, this little girl, I'll be honest with you, I have trouble relating to that. And I think that can happen to us when we read about, you know, hopefully most of us in this room have not struggled with the potential, or God forbid, even the loss of a child, especially at an untimely age. And so I feel like when we read these things, it's so easy for us to just be like, and Jairus, it was his name, seeing him, he fell at his feet, implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter's at the point of death, come and lay your hands on her. And then we just move on, but we don't recognize what was going on in the heart and the soul and the mind of this man. When, when I was working at camp, I used to work in Harris County um, for a number of years. It's how I got started in ministry, love it, out at Camp Joy. Um, I think I was probably 17 or 18 years old, and at one point, I don't know if she was 12, she was somewhere 11, 12, or 13. I remember being in the director's cabin and looking across the field at where the swimming pool was. And I could see kind of this commotion, and all of a sudden, there were a couple of, of the leaders and the head lifeguard running up to the director's cabin where I was. And they took this girl, and you know those green military cots? We had one of those for when kids got sick or they got homesick. We'd sit them on it. We'd give them Smarties and tell them it was homesick pills. And they'd go on, and life was good again. Well, this time the cot wasn't being used that way. There was a little girl laying on it, drowned, not breathing, purple. And I'm trying to wrestle through, am I watching this little girl die? Is this really happening? And the lifeguard's working. Eventually, the CPR was effective. She, she comes to, spits up 14 gallons of water. I don't know what the lifeguards are doing. She was down there way too long. And fortunately, she came back to life. And, and, and so I, I can kind of, but that wasn't my kid. You know what I mean? It's different when it's not your child. And, and, and when it does come to my own life, the closest thing I've ever had was my firstborn, Ellis. Um, it had to be within a year old. I hate telling stories without asking my wife first, because what's going to happen is we're going to go to lunch. She's going to be like, that wasn't true. He was, this was like three weeks ago, and I'm so bad at that. I should have run this by her. Anyway, I do remember this. I remember him being young enough to where a high temperature was like a super freaky thing. And 
his temperature was like 104 plus. And I remember grabbing him and throwing him in the car, getting Karen Ann in the car, and rushing to the emergency room. We get there, and I'm like, hey, hey, somebody, somebody, please, somebody's got to come and help my kid because I'm afraid that this temperature is going to mess up his, his head. You know what I mean? Like, I'm afraid it's going to have permanent, like, uh, I don't even know what the word is. It, it's going to permanently scar him or change him. And so I'm freaking out as a parent. That's the closest that I, but it, it wasn't an issue of, is he going to make it? And now, I mean, I've got three kids. We know that they can get to 107. You don't have to worry about it. Just put water on them. They're fine. That's not true. Don't call defect, please. Don't call defect. I take my children to the doctor regularly. <clears throat> but in this situation, I can't fully relate. And I think it's a situation where I just have to say, okay, God, I can relate to the most difficult thing in my life. And that's probably what Jairus is dealing with here. And so that's what I'll come to this with. And he comes, and in verse 24, it says that Jesus went with him. Now this, to me, must have been an amazing moment to Jairus. Jesus was well known. That's why crowds showed up the moment they heard his boat was coming. And Jairus comes through and Jesus looks at him and hears him and he agrees to go with him. And now here is what I think happened. I think Jairus started socially pulling Jesus through the crowd. It's that thing where, you know, you're, you're looking at somebody because they're coming with you to do something, but they don't have the sense of urgency that you have. So you feel like by looking over your shoulder and doing this, you're going to convey that sense of urgency to them. The plumbing breaks in your house and it floods the kitchen. And when the plumber shows up, you're not eating Doritos, flipping through direct TV. You're down there with the towel and the mop. And as soon as he pulls in, you run out the door and you wave him down. No, this is the house. Don't go any farther. And then he's like moving slow. He's grabbing his bag. And you're like, you know, you're, you're doing this number, you know. You can't make him come, but you can stare him and pull him with you. It's the same when, when we were in the hospital. Sometimes you hit the button. Uh, we need some ice chips, please. Thank you. I'm sorry to bother you. The nurse comes in with you. But then there's sometimes where this like machine's making noises that it's not supposed to make. And you run out the hall and you say, hey, hey, I need a nurse. Nurse. And, and they don't, here's what doesn't happen. Okay, we'll be right there. And you're like, excellent. No, you're like, okay, good. That's kind of what I feel is probably happening here with Jairus. And, and we laugh, but here's the deal. Here's a guy whose daughter, potentially his only child, is at death's door. And though this is not what I'm preaching at, what beauty in the only son of God rescuing potentially the only son, or excuse me, the only child of this man, that he would later lay down his life both for him and for her beautiful. So he's on the way. But the story doesn't continue there because Mark interposes this story about a woman with a disease. And so we're going to pick up halfway through verse 24. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better 
but rather grew worse. Helpless situation number one, disciples in the boat. Jesus has sufficient power for that. Helpless situation number two, a man riddled with demons. Nobody else could do it. Jesus has power sufficient for that. A man with his daughter knocking on death's door. There's nowhere else to turn, but Jesus' power is sufficient for that. And a woman who for 12 years has been sick and has sought every doctor and spent every penny, no one has been able to do it, but Jesus has power sufficient for that. A great crowd followed him and thronged about him. I did not know what that word meant, and I did not want to guess. But what it basically means is this. Take a crowd and then squeeze them like this, and you have created a throng. So it's basically a large crowd stuck together. This is what happened every time the bell rang when I was at Hardaway because we had just picked up 300 extra students. The bell would ring, and we would start walking through the halls, and either you were... I'm sorry if you get offended here. Either you were the nerdy student who was sitting by the door anyway who couldn't wait to get into the next class. And as soon as that bell rang, trapper keeper closed. And you beat the rush and you were fine. Or you were on the other side of things and you're like, I'm probably going to get detention anyway, whatever. You let the crowd kind of chill out and then you just kind of mosey on in. I'm sorry, Ms. Krabappel, blah, 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 blah. You know, you have detention. Yes, I understand. It was crowded. But, but what typically happened was this. You'd have about 600 people squeezed into a 15-foot hallway. Now, why am I talking about this? Because it matters. Why is the crowd constantly being brought up? Why include the fact that they're densely packed in? Because Jairus had to fight his way through, and so did this woman. But the ramifications are different. Because we read about the disease that this woman had, and most likely the bleeding was menstrual, which meant she was both anemic, she'd been bleeding for 12 years, probably physically, obviously diseased and sick. On top of that, because it was an issue of blood, she was ceremonially unclean and therefore could not go to the temple, could not go to church or spend time with the women. But then let's take it even a step further. If she was in public, she had to announce her disease because anyone who came in contact with her was then considered unclean. And here she is trying to work through the halls of a school that is tightly packed, except it is no school, and there are thousands upon thousands. It's a sea of faces thronged and squeezed tightly together. And the story goes on. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. His clothes were sufficient for her. I don't want to touch him. That's probably too much. In verse 8, for she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Why? Because she had faith and she recognized. I told you it's going to be sprinkled throughout this whole thing. That Jesus has power over all things. And so she goes. Verse 29. And immediately, the flow of blood dried up. 
And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. But her story doesn't stop there. Because while the power of Christ may benefit us, it is not about us. That's why this story doesn't stop here, but it continues in verse 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? Now Jesus said a lot of things that made the disciples scratch their heads. This was in the top five. He's in a crowd of people, and he's not standing still teaching like he does sometimes, although even in that case, he has to have his back to the sea just to make sure they can make an escape and he's not crushed. No, he's walking through a crowd that is tightly packed in, and he stops for a minute and remember the context of our story. He's here, and potentially Jairus is still socially trying to get him to the house. My daughter, it's not, is sick, could you come by? It's she is dying. Every moment matters. Every second is crucial. You've got to hurry. Why aren't you running? And he's pulling and Jesus stops. And I wonder at this moment if maybe Jairus went too far and looked and he lost him for a moment. And began to panic and begins to go back. And Jesus refusing to move in this crowd until he finds out What has just happened? And I've got to be honest with you, I don't fully understand this. Because sometimes we read about Christ perceiving the thoughts of other people. To me, that would make it very difficult to teach. Just the thought. If I was up here perceiving your thought, that would make it very difficult for me. All right? But Jesus was able to perceive thoughts, and yet in this moment, he doesn't know who touched him. I don't have an answer for that. You can maybe ask Brad. Shoot him an email or something like that. But, But I think... I think what we have is a recognition that Christ is both fully God with power over all things and yet at the same time is fully man so that he can take the wrath that you and I deserve. Maybe this is simply an example of that. Jesus perceiving in himself, verse 30 by the way, that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? Are you kidding And he looked around to see who had done it. He doesn't even respond to him. He just begins looking around through the crowd to see who had done it. To perceive who his power had gone out and changed. Why? Why does it matter? There's a pressing need, Jesus. There's this daughter dying. Why does it matter? She's been healed. You don't need to stop everything. Well, because... Jesus has an eternal perspective. And so should we. And he did not come to heal the body and not the soul. He recognizes that in this moment, something is occurring to where the healing of a soul for all eternity could happen. I can deal with life and death in a minute. That's secondary. The life and death of a soul, I'll deal with that now. And so Jesus begins looking. And I I wonder about this woman. So many things probably racing through her heart. As she knows that he has stopped and is looking for her. 
on one hand, she doesn't want to stand up and say anything because she's defiled who knows how many hundreds of people getting to Jesus. And as soon as her garbage comes out in the open, what are people going to say? But then on the other hand, she's healed. She was sick for 12 years. Her life was defined by her illness and her brokenness. And yet now she is healed. And I think this internal civil war begins to go until all of a sudden we hit verse 33. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And this was not done in a counseling room. This was not done in the pastor's office. This was not over a private lunch meeting. This is in the middle of a crowd. And as she's explaining, yeah, I'd been bleeding for 12 years. I'd been unclean, ostracized from society. As she's telling this whole truth to Jesus, this whole truth is being told to everyone else as well. Because Jesus was not content to heal her body. He was not content to make her day better tomorrow. That was not enough for him. Does he love us? Yes. Am I trying to pull that away? No. God shows us abundant grace and abundant mercy. And Jesus dearly loved this woman who will soon be called daughter. But his primary concern was not her life here and now. It was her soul for all eternity. She tells him the whole truth and a testimony is born of the goodness of God through his son, Jesus Christ, in the crowd. And this is what he would want for you and for me as well. I'm not saying we have to walk around telling the whole truth of every sin and every brokenness that we've lived through. But when Christ has healed us, he expects our soul to cry much louder than what people think about the goodness that he has done for us. Does that make sense? And he said to her, daughter, not woman, not hey you, not person. And he said to her, daughter, you see, welcome to the family. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Why include that? Well, because her greatest disease was not an issue of blood. Her greatest disease was an issue of sin and the heart. But the faith that she showed in coming to him described a faith that she showed in coming to him not only as a doctor, but as a savior. So he can rightly say, daughter, you are healed. Go in peace because the wrath of God is no longer upon you. It's going to be placed upon me because you have placed your faith in me And be healed of your disease. Secondarily, be healed of your disease. Do I love you? Yes. Do I want to take care of you? Yes. But secondarily, be healed of your disease. Primarily, I have eternity in mind here. And your soul is of much greater concern. Because Christ has power over all things. And though his power may benefit us, it is not solely about us. Verse 35, while he was still speaking... There came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. One daughter 
has come to life to a heavenly father. And another daughter has passed into death to an earthly father. Jairus, you weren't pulling Jesus fast enough. If only you'd have left a couple hours earlier. No, if only that woman hadn't interrupted him. Why would she do that? Jesus, why would you do that? She was sick for 12 years. She'll be sick for 12 more. My daughter's dying now. Why? And ironically, as Jairus potentially became overcome with anger and grief and fear, All at the same time, the two people those emotions are probably being launched at, Jesus and this woman, are also his only hope. Jesus, the one who can do something about it, and the woman who has now modeled the faith that he must have. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher? Any further. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. This woman who fought through the crowd, defiling everyone around her, do you see this model of faith? Do not fear. Though socially she would have been ostracized to a greater degree, she did not fear, she believed. Jairus, do not fear, only believe. You're here, so I'm assuming you don't have a child at home who's on death's door. But you will. And it may not be a daughter. But it's going to be a moment where anything else that you seek to put your hope and trust in will fail you. That person that you've looked up to is going to fall. The account is going to be zeroed out. Your intellect and your strength is going to fail you. The the obedience of your children is going to topple. Whatever it is that you find comfort in outside of Christ is going to fall. Do not fear. Only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. So Jesus and his three Titus disciples are going in. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Now, needless to say, this was a tragedy. A young girl died before her time, many would say. And so there was family and there were friends who were there and they were crying and they were weeping with the family, weeping with those who weep, sharing in their grief. But there was also another group of people and this was another cultural thing. When when people in the society were working through a difficulty, there were professional mourners, people who would show up and cry with them and help them work through the grief. This was what they did. They punched the clock and they went and cried with people. I'm not well suited for that job. Some people are. Some of you are. So Jesus walks up on this scene and we see their insincerity in verse 39. 
And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Now, you could say, well, Will, he didn't really raise her from the dead, if that's what you're getting at here, because Jesus said she's sleeping. Well, jump to Luke, I think in chapter 8, and you realize from his account, she's very much dead. But what Jesus is getting across in this is simply this point. I am all-powerful. I have power over all things. Her death for these number of minutes or hours will be little more than a nap when it is compared to my power. Verse 40, and they laughed at him, mocking him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. There's a few people in the room. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Mark includes the Aramaic here. And I don't speak that. But what I can take from this is that in the masculine form, this is probably what Jesus heard when he was eight years old and Mary came in to wake him up. This is his mother tongue. And he sits next to the girl and in essence says, Princess, get up. Little one. Wake up. And do you know what I love about this? Do you know what I love about this that informs the way I live my life and walk through this world having faith in Christ, the one who has power over all things? Jesus did not have to have an extra cup of coffee. He didn't take a five-hour energy shot. He did not stand outside the house going, you're the son of God. You can do this. You can handle this. Death is nothing to you. I got this, Dad. You're going to be with, all right, let's do this. He didn't, he didn't have his earbuds in, rocking back and forth, getting ready for the big game. He doesn't have to. He doesn't shout. He doesn't yell. He doesn't make a big commotion. For me to get my kid up for when he is just sleeping is more difficult than it is for Jesus to raise a girl from the dead because he has all power. There are a number of things that Ellis and I are alike in. Our sleeping patterns are probably in the top of the list. We both hate going to sleep. There's too much other fun stuff to do. But just as much as we hate going to sleep, we hate the thought of having to wake up once we are asleep. Which is how it shakes out for us. I have to wake him up for preschool now. He goes three times a week. And so... Similar to what Jesus did here with the girl who is dead, I'm trying to do with my son who is very much alive. Ellis, get up. Wake up. Son, hey, hey, nothing. When we ta- I take him to the bathroom at night, uh, usually around 1 o'clock, and I'm awake then, and I catch some ridicule and grief over that. Um, that's, that's just the way I do it, and there's nothing biblically that says I can't. I shoot for six hours. Anything more, I feel like I'm wasting my time. But William, you're supposed to rise early and meet the Lord. I do. I just do it before you wake up. I rise before I go to sleep. It's early in the morning. The Bible's still there at 1 o'clock. And so I, I get up and I take Ellis to use the bathroom. Otherwise, he'll wet the bed. And the, the ritual is 
I don't try to wake him. I just pick him up and put him on the ground and hold his hand and intentionally walk him across that cast iron grate. We have a house from the 50s. That's where the furnace used to blow in, right? I intentionally walk him across it so that it, it like he incurs a little bit of pain and he wakes up. And the reason I do that is if I pick him up out of the bed and I sit him on the toilet, I did this six months ago, I walked out of the room and heard a... He had fallen asleep on the toilet, fell to the side, hit his head on the wall, and got pinned in between the wall and the toilet. We're, we're, <laughs> this is extra. We were driving home last night from dinner, and uh, Karen Ann was asking me, Karen Ann's favorite part um, of a sermon are the stories. She loves God's word, but she, she loves hearing stories. And so she always asks me, what, you know, what stories are you going to tell? And I said, well, I don't know. I, I think I might talk about that time Ellis got pinned between the toilet and the wall because I'm talking about this little girl who's hard to wake up, and yet Jesus has power to wake her up from death, and I can barely get my own kid to wake up. And, and she's like, oh, okay. And from the back, Ellis yells forward. He goes, yeah, I peed on the magazines. And Karen Ann goes, what? And Ellis goes, maybe not, maybe not. And she said, well, you've got to tell me. We can't just leave the magazine. This was like six months ago. She's like, you've got to tell me. We can't just leave the magazines. And he said, I think I peed on the magazines. A lot more happening in that story than we'd realize. Let's bring it back. My point is, Jesus, his power is so all-sufficient that he need only say, princess, get up, to change death into life. That, that's all he needs say. Jairus, I didn't need to run. In fact, it is better for your own soul that I not. You already had faith in my ability to heal the body. Did you recognize my ability to heal death? Did you recognize your own need for a savior who could rescue you from death? Do you recognize your need for a savior who can rescue you from death? And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Verse number two, Will does not understand. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. Jesus was just followed by a thronging crowd to the doorstep of a house filled with people who were mourning the obvious death of a child who is now walking around eating a Pop-Tart. Shh, don't tell people. I, but I, I think in a sense what we find is Jesus again saying... While my power may benefit you, it is not solely about you. The healing of her body, amazing, yes, but there is something greater still, and that is the healing of the human soul. This is not what needs to be highlighted. Uh, a savior sent by God to save the souls of mankind, that's what you underline, that's what you highlight, that's what you circle. Don't miss the point. Keep this to yourself and get her something to eat. 
I, w- I want to close with this thought. Jesus walks into a room where there's a little girl with no breath in her. And the idea of breath leaving a body is a pretty profound thing biblically. Because what separates you and I from everything else in all creation is not the creator, though we are made in his image. It's the fact that we were both made in his image and he breathed life into us. Giraffes didn't get that deal. Plants didn't get that deal. The greatest things in all the cosmos did not get that, but this Fairly small, insignificant compared to God, man did as he breathed life into him. But just as Jesus walked into a room with a girl who was dead and not breathing, so he approaches us. You see, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And we are not mostly dead. We are dead. And Jesus walks up to us. Not breathing. Not moving. And he says, that breath that my father gave you. You use not to praise him. But to curse him. And to praise yourself. That breath is required back of you. That is what your sin has earned, death. Give God that breath back. But the same breath that God breathed into us, through Christ, God breathed out his final breath to redeem us. And for us to be redeemed means we have to be deemed again. Don't lose me in this. This is, this is huge and it's beautiful. The word redeem, these two letters, R and E, should be the most beautiful letters to you in all of your Christian walk. Because God looked at you and he said, I deem you a sinner. I deem you unworthy. I deem you unfit for a relationship with me. That is what I deem you because how you have used the breath that I have given you. But then Jesus steps in on the scene. He stands in front of the dead girl. He stands in front of you. He stands in front of me if we respond to the gospel. And he gives up his breath that we may be redeemed. And God looks at me And he looks at his daughters and he looks at his sons and he no longer says, I deem you unworthy. I deem you unfit. I deem you sinner, unworthy of a relationship with me. He says, I redeem you worthy. I redeem you righteous. I redeem you my son, my daughter, my child, not because of you, but because of my son. That's what he does. When the breath of his son leaves for you and for me. Brian, would you throw all three up? I'm going to close this in prayer. It does not matter if you've been walking with Christ for 50 years. Or for 50 seconds. Or if you have yet to respond to the truth of the gospel. 
All of these things point us to the same place. Jesus has power over all things. Christian, take faith. Non-Christian, look for that faith. His power may benefit us, but it is not about us. Your life is not about you. You were bought at a price. Honor God with your body. These next 80 years, whatever it is, have already been paid for. Your ski trip sponsor came through. Good news, you couldn't afford it. Somebody else paid it for you. Now live out of grateful response to what has been paid for you. Jesus has an eternal perspective, and so should we. Christian, that changes your life. You stop worrying about the today and the tomorrow and where are we going to meet for Christmas? We got to see your family. We got to see my family. We got to get all the. No, no, no. There's an eternal perspective here. Jesus is not so worried about the life and the death here. Does he love us? Yes. He's worried about an eternal perspective. And that is, is God receiving glory with the life that you are living? That's what's being said. And when we're living with an eternal perspective, that's what we look at. And it doesn't matter what happens in life because life really doesn't matter in comparison with eternity, which we are seeking. But for the... For the non-Christian, this hits home as well. Because these 80 years are going to end. What is your perspective? Where's your hope? Where's your trust? Is it in the all-powerful, all-sufficient Son of God? Or is it in you, in your intellect, in your wit, and whatever else? No, an eternal perspective points us to the cross. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us in delivering your word to us. And your word is more than just this book in front of me. Your word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And you sent your son so that regardless of what difficulty we hit, we recognize that all power and all sufficiency is in Christ and in Christ alone. And though we may be drawn to that, as though we could touch Jesus or know Jesus and walk away only having this life changed. Father, that was never your plan and it was never your purpose. You are not content to fix today because eternity is hanging in the balance. And so, Father, whether it be a soul that is far from you or a soul that is near, I pray that our eyes would be on eternity. And that we would seek the only one in whom we can rest and have peace. So Father, I pray that you would do that for us. Both today and forevermore. Amen.